Blog Talk Radio. January 3rd, 2018 edition of Don't Let It Go Unheard. And here we discuss news, politics, and culture from an individualist perspective. I'm your host, Amy Peekoff, and thank you all for joining me here for the first show of the year at Blog Talk Radio. Some people are filing in to the chat room as I speak. If you want to call in and talk to me today, the number at which to do so is 760 760- Eight 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 five eight one seven. Again, that's seven six zero eight 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 five eight one seven. And if you're on the line and you do want to talk, what you'll need to do is press the one key because that'll give me a little icon in the viewer at the studio here, and then I'll be able to see that you want to talk. The other thing, of course, is participate here in the chat room. Welcome everyone. I see some familiar names hanging out. I'm sorry I wasn't able to do a show last week. Family obligations just uh, were a bit overwhelming for me. The other thing that ended up happening, and I had already said I was not going to do a show. I posted that I wasn't going to. And then I discovered that my dog had gotten loose that morning and was just gone in the neighborhood. And I went, walked all over the place looking for her. And then when I came back, she was waiting for me. That was Boo, right? The one who'd been sick and I almost lost her, I thought, you know, to cancer and I didn't, she was fine. And then I'm going to lose her because I carelessly leave a gate open, kill my own dog. Anyway, I didn't. So that was good. But yeah, I would have had to cancel that show anyway, but I was already overwhelmed with, uh, with family stuff. So I am back. I hope you had a wonderful holiday season spent with family and friends. I started the new year with a little on a kind of a down note. I've got a couple of good friends who moved away. Um, You guys know, you know, you're wrong. And actually I was listening to him doing a little test show yesterday. He wasn't able to do a full show, I guess, because he was having technical problems. And I was actually on the phone with him trying to tell him what I was seeing on, on Facebook and everything. And I guess he told you guys yesterday that today he's going to tell you where he is and of course I know where he is but I'm not going to tell you I I should tell you right what I should say is that maybe sometime during my show I'm going to tell you where Yaron Brook is and you know kind of spill the secrets and stuff and then I would get you to listen to my entire show but no I'm an honest person so no I'm going to tell you I'm not going to tell you where Euron is. So if you're listening to my show because you're hoping I'm going to spill the beans about where Euron is, I'm not going to do it. You're going to have to listen to my show on the strength of the show. Little title I came up with for you this morning, Treasonous Nothing Burgers and Big Effective Nuclear Buttons. Welcome to 2018. Trump, by tweeting out various things and then also Bannon by, I guess, 
billing a whole bunch of stuff to a journalist who wrote a book, a big expose on Trump's administration or something, gave us a lot to talk about this morning. There have been times this morning I've just been laughing too hard. I was trying to put my program notes together, and Shapiro's just out there tweeting this stuff. And, um, yeah, so the result is you can see the program notes. I've got them over at the blog at don'tletitgo.com. They are tweet-heavy, the program notes this morning. I've just got a bunch of stuff. I was out there on Twitter just going back and forth with people. I should have actually put in the program notes a tweet that I had quite a bit of success with thanks to Shapiro. Shapiro retweeted a tweet that I put out on the first day. and it was, I believe it was January 1st. And uh, the tweet was Rand's quotation that you can avoid reality, but you cannot avoid the consequences of avoiding reality, right? Um, you can choose to evade consciously. You could try to choose to evade reality and you can act according to whatever evasions you're trying to tell yourself. But in the end, reality is going to catch up with you. The consequences are going to catch up with you. It's a great quotation. And it's, of course, it's very similar to the quotation uh, from Shapiro, you know, Shapiro's own words that he has pinned at the top of his Twitter profile, which is facts don't care about your feelings. It's the same thing. If you feel like you, you know, that you have certain feelings that are in contradiction with reality, it's not going to help you at all, right? You know, the facts don't care. The facts are going to come get you. So it's the you know, primacy of existence just writ large. And so anyway, Shapiro retweeted it. And it's interesting to see, you know, the kind of audience he has, because he's got a million followers on Twitter. And what does that sort of, you know, translate into? Of course, it's just a retweet of a tweet of mine. So it's not like it's coming from him. I don't know what his own original tweets. And of course, he's got some of course, that I'm sure get more play than others and everything else. But last I checked that tweet, it was from the Ayn Rand bot. And all I did was give a little intro and say it was one of her best quotations, which it is. And then Shapiro retweeted that it went out to over, it was seen by on Twitter, over 330,000 people just from one retweet of Shapiro. So it's pretty powerful stuff. Um, you know, what you want, if you can do it, I, I have this awesome fortune of being followed on Twitter by Shapiro. And I, maybe it was a good conversation that I had with him. This one, I only met him once at, at an event and we were talking about um, the exclusionary rule. You know, he's a lawyer and I guess he, I guess he liked what I had to say. I don't know why he follow He follows me. It's awesome. And every so often he retweets me and when he does, it's great. So what I hope is that my most important things could get retweeted by Shapiro at some point, but I'm not sure on some of the things that I consider most important in my life that he actually even agrees with me. I'm not sure if he agrees with me on the third party doctrine, for example, it'd be fun to have that conversation in any event. There's a whole bunch over there. Like I said, at the blog, don't let it go.com. I'll talk a little bit about some of the new year's resolution stuff and the Mark Manson book that I was looking at. I actually listened to the whole Mark Manson book, the subtle art of not giving an F. I won't say the whole word here because I'm trying to have my show on blog talk be able to go out for family listening. They have different categories. You have to categorize your show. And I guess if I wanted to use profanity during my whole show, blog talk wouldn't care, but I would just have to delineate. I guess it's PG 13 or whatever, if I'm going to have profanity in the show. So I figure I won't. I, I will hold back, but the the book, 
the book. It was good. I really enjoyed it. I'll be talking about it more because I'm going to listen to it again. You know, I listen to these things while I go out and walk dogs and all these kind of things. And so I want to go back, but I'll give you a little bit of, you know, something that I got from it during today's show. So we'll do some of that, but we're also just kind of taking in the spectacle of the beginning of 2018 with what Trump is doing. You know, I have a half joke in the program notes as well. I've got Prince's 1999 music video. If you recall, Prince had this song, 1999. He talks about the fact that you know, 2000, everybody thought in the year 2000, everything was going to blow up. You know, the computers were all going to crash. And th- uh, there was a huge industry of people writing, I guess, special software patch programs to make sure that all the computers of the world didn't crash and suddenly the planes fall from the sky or whatever nightmare you want to imagine the year 2000 bug or glitches or whatever it is that they expected amounted to nothing. As I recall, there was almost nothing, but it was a big talk up leading up to that. 1999 let's party like it's 1999 says Prince and you know, everything's just going to go to hell. So we might as well party. And so my joke this morning was, well, it's 1999 plus 19, right? We're here at 2018, and this is the year, apparently. Everything's just going to go to hell in a bucket because there's Trump out there tweeting provocatively to North Korea, to Iran, to basically everybody out there. And uh, there's a bunch of talk about, you know, he, he talked about the fact that his nuclear button, Trump, Trump is tweeting back and forth to uh, Kim Jong-un. And he's saying, uh, you know, nuclear button, his nuclear button is much bigger than North Korea's. Um, uh, yeah, it says, uh, what, what was it? The North Korean Kim Jong-un just stated that the nuclear button is on his desk at all times, Trump wrote on Twitter. Will someone from his depleted and food-starved regime please inform him, inform him that I, too, have a nuclear button, but it is a much bigger and more powerful one than his, and my button works. This is how we get to start the new year with our president. I didn't even bother to try to tweet anything in reaction to that. I mean, what do you do when you see your president tweet this way to a crazy leader of a communist dictatorship who apparently has some access to nukes. I guess right now he's not able to deliver a nuclear warhead to us, but I don't know at what point he might actually gain that capability. And I don't know whether what Trump is doing with this is the right thing or the wrong thing. Strategy, military strategy is way beyond any pay grade that I have ever held in my life. Uh, John says, does Kim Jong-un have a Twitter account? I recall seeing the, so I, I think I recall it seeing it somewhere, but yeah. John says, nuclear button size envy here in the chat room. Maybe he does. Maybe he does. Um, oh, people, it's so funny. People are, oh, trying to guess where Iran is in the chat room. <laughs> They're they're saying, oh, well, bet, you know, there was uh, the sun was shining this morning on his test today, which means he's not in New Zealand, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Go ahead. I hope I hope he's got the sound up and everything and that everything's going to go well. By the way, um, well, we'll 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 talk about this more when I talk about Mark Manson's book later. Well, I'll there's a there's a teaser. It's a teaser that's related to 
you're on in a show, but it's not uh, giving out his location. Yeah, that's not dishonest. If, if I tell you I've got a teaser that's related to a show, but it's not giving out his location, I can go ahead and let make you guys wait for that until the end of the show. Yeah, so this is how we're starting out, right? We're starting the year out with Trump saying these provocative things. And then there was something else that he tweeted out to Iran, essentially. But what he was doing was you know, giving a message to the protesters in Iran. This is what Trump says. He says, and this was just this morning, he says, such respect for the people of Iran as they try to take back their corrupt government. You will see great support from the United States at the appropriate time. That's what he says. Now, for me, I am in favor of supporting the uprising in Iran, what you would need to do is you would need to think about, is it in America's self-interest to do it? And hopefully he's got some intelligent people who are figuring out, you know, is it in America's self-interest? To what extent is the involvement in our self-interest, et cetera? But once you've made that decision, and what I ended up tweeting back to him was, once you've made this decision that you are going to support these very brave people who are standing up for their freedom in Iran, people, some of them, whom have already lost their lives. The article that I saw yesterday in New York Times said that there were already 21 killed in these protests and 450 captured and imprisoned from the protests, as I recall. And there are threats being sent out by you know, various organizations within their government, military, whatever, that they're going to come and clamp down on these people. You can imagine that the ones who have gone out there already and taken part in these protests are the best and bravest. And these are the ones that are already dying and being imprisoned. If you have decided, Donald Trump, that you're going to do this, that you're going to help these people, what is this to sit back and say, oh, I'll get involved at the appropriate time. So it's like, Go out there and sacrifice yourself some more, even though I've already decided to help you. I think I'll come in when it's like more of, you know, a photo op or something for me. It'll look more impressive if there's, you know, or, or maybe maybe this is it, right? Because, and, and this is something I've talked about before on the show a bit, but also in my social media posts and stuff on Facebook. There's been a couple articles talking about Donald Trump essentially thinking on the perceptual level. And those of you who are fans of Leonard Peikoff, my ex, you know that he did this talk, Ford Hall Forum. It was called A Picture is Not an Argument. And the title actually, I actually came up with the title, Picture is Not an Argument, um, you know, but of course the whole talk and, you know, the whole thinking behind it and stuff was his and we were talking about it and then suddenly, you know, I thought of the title. So um, in that talk, he was talking about the the prevalence of using pictures of fetuses in the anti-abortion argument, the so-called pro-life movement, using photos and you know videos or whatever, any images of fetuses as your argument, because that's not an argument. A picture just, you know, shows you, yeah, well, so it looks like a human being, okay? Um, that's not 
the whole story. And so a lot of people will have their heartstrings tugged by the fact that it looks like a human being. And in fact, you know, if I was pregnant and I'm looking at this that looks like a human being and I'm trying to decide whether to have an abortion, yes, it would be a lot harder to do it when you see this, right? But it is not an argument in and of itself. It just will tie, you know, kind of tug at your heartstrings. What a couple articles, you know, that purport to have actual information about what goes on with Trump and his daily briefings that he gets from his staff and everything is that his staff have been encouraged, his advisors have been encouraged when they brief him to use images a lot. And there have been a couple crucial policy decisions that these articles have attributed to, you know, sort of compelling images of people suffering. So maybe Trump is just saying, hey, you know, show me an image of, you know, some real suffering, some real carnage over there in Iran, and and then I'll step in. You know, it's not enough that you know that some people have already been killed, that some people have already been imprisoned, that you know probably the people who are going out on the streets first and putting themselves in the line of fire, putting themselves at risk, that those people are probably the best and the bravest among them because they're willing to act on their convictions. Those are the people that we would want to help and support the most. Those are the people that we would want to be able to have there. If there's going to be a new Iranian government, that these are the best people to create a new free Iran. Why not save as many of those people as possible? Once you know, now I'm not saying that, for sure he had to make the decision to intervene. Certainly he should voice support. And and by the way, I should have put in the program notes, uh, Benjamin Netanyahu put a put out there a really nice speech, a very short speech, and it was on video both on Facebook and on Twitter. So you can find it out there if you go to his page on Facebook or Twitter. It was just a really good speech voicing support for the people of Iran who are rising up and and trying to overthrow. So he showed a lot of moral support, which they need. Uh, Trump, of course, should do that. I wish he would do it in such an eloquent and wonderful way as as Netanyahu did. Uh, How much should we get involved militarily would depend on what we see being in our national self-interest. So is it, you know, oh, yeah, I think we should go out there and put troops on the ground and not necessarily. Uh, There's been some talk, for example, even Snowden was tweeting out there, he says, there's a um, communication app that a lot of Iranians were using and maybe are still using called Telegram. I think it's called Telegram. And the Iranian government was shutting down certain channels of this and, and you know, kind of clamping down. It's to be expected, of course, right? You know, it's not like you can say, okay, I want to live in a country and start doing things that amount to overthrowing the government And I expect the government to just kind of leave me alone and let me communicate and do all that. You don't expect that, right? So, you know, the government, of course, is going to clamp down on communications channels that are used by people trying to overthrow the government. Duh, it's going to happen. But what would be nice is if the United States has any ability to reopen those channels, we could help with something like that, just for example. Um, You know, help get the message out voice moral support. There are things that we could do without massive involvement. But my point here is, you know, and people were questioning me on Twitter, are you calling for war and all this? Once he says that he's going to come in and support, he said, you will see great support 
from the United States at the appropriate time. Should I hold him to it? You know, is he very exact on Twitter? But if I see, you know, he says great support. I, I don't know if he's exaggerating or not. You know, he's, he's got the big effective, you know, nuclear button or something. But, you know, if you say you're going to give these people who are rising up to potentially overthrow their government, people who have been calling for the death of the leaders in Iran. If you're going to say that, then why not just go in and do it and and save some of the lives of the people who are the best and the bravest there, the ones who are putting themselves at the at the forefront of this. You know that it's the best people probably that are the ones that have been killed or captured already. Um so there he is. He's out there. He's doing this. And Iran does have nuclear capability. Iran has threatened to wipe out our allies, is Israel and things. So things are pretty uh, volatile seeming out there at the beginning of 2018. Uh, yeah, that is the last tweet from Trump. So that, that's the last tweet from Trump. But that is not the only thing that we've heard from Trump today. So, you know, he's tweeting about the nuclear warhead that he, or, you know, he's got this big effective nuclear button. And what some people are saying now is that the nuclear button, he's already shown that he can use it. Why? Because he's used it on Steve Bannon, who was his former advisor, who's now gone back to Breitbart. So let's look at what has gone on just this morning with the story about Bannon. So what happens is we've got over at the Guardian, they just, you know, released, I guess they had the first exclusive on the story because Wolf, Michael Wolf, an author of a new book that's supposedly coming out, who knows what's going to happen with this book now, right? Um, Wolf is, I gather, a journalist at the Guardian. So that's how they get the exclusive. The book is entitled Fire and Fury, and it's supposed to be a big expose into the Trump administration and, you know, things about whether, you know, Melania Trump wanted him to win and be, and maybe she didn't. And there's all sorts of damning things in this book. But the headline from The Guardian is Trump Tower meeting with Russians, quote, treasonous, Bannon says, an explosive book. And what Bannon supposedly said was, and actually, I'm not going to say supposedly because, uh, as I'll show you in a minute, Bannon doesn't seem to have denied this. Bannon says, quote, they're going to crack Don Jr. like an egg on national TV. That's the byline of this story, um, or the subhead, as we would call it. It says, uh, Donald Trump's former chief strategist, Steve Bannon, has described the Trump Tower meeting between the president's son and a group of Russians during the 2016 election campaign as, quote, treasonous and unpatriotic, according to an explosive new book seen by The Guardian. Bannon, speaking to author Michael Wolf, warned that the investigation into alleged collusion with the Kremlin will focus on money laundering and predicted, quote, they're going to crack Don Jr. like an egg on national TV. So, you know, the question that occurred to me is, could a nothing burger because everything that has come out about this so far, everybody calls it nothing burger. No matter what it is, it is a nothing burger. And to me, it's not just nothing burger. Is there enough there to 
prove a case of collusion. No, there isn't that I've seen yet, but there have been some things that show that it's, I believe it's worthwhile to continue the investigation. One of them was Trump Jr.'s willingness to meet with these Russians, knowing what the purpose of the meeting was and the eagerness. He said, you know, if that's what it is, that it's this dirt on Hillary, I love it, etc. You know, I have to explain again what my attitude is about this. I don't care who you're running against in the United States. You don't take information from an enemy country in order to win an election. Um, you know, that's it's this in, in uh, law we call it fruit of the poisonous tree. Actually, it's part of the exclusionary rule, which is I'm sure that's one of the reasons that it occurred to me is because I talked about the exclusionary rule earlier in connection with um, with Shapiro. But you know, this idea that you should just be able to take something from a bad source and it's still a value, I disagree with that. I disagree with that. You know, so for example, recently there was a video that was published out there and it was by an organization that I will have nothing to do with because I believe they're entirely an unethical organization. And the video I heard was quite good on the particular topic. And actually, given the particular topic, I wasn't surprised. Um, But I never watched the video. I could have watched it and this video went viral and everybody loved it and, and it was instructive on a particular topic and stuff. If I'd watched this video, I might have learned something. I would not even watch it. I would not even watch And it wasn't because, oh, I don't want to give them like a page view or whatever. It is that to me, if I'm learning something from a truly evil source, it's not a value. It's, it's not a value. You could say, okay, yeah, it's true or whatever, but, um, you know, when you're when you're in an election, right, when you're trying to say that I'm trying to win the position of president of the United States, then you don't collude with enemies of the United States. And Russia, you'd have to go and dig all the different things that they are doing to show themselves to be enemies of free countries, United States, all sorts of countries in Europe and some of the other countries in the Eastern Europe around them, um, bad guys. And so, you know, if, if you are willing to meet with and take things from bad guys, bad guys who are trying to meddle in your elections and have influence over your government, your, your ethics are questioned. So it is important to me to know if there is anything actionable. The one thing that we're fortunate about, right, is that all of this Russia stuff was exposed really early. So right now, do you think that there could be anything going on, but, you know, some any sort of corruption, some sort of crony-ish type deals between Russia and United States? Everything is being scrutinized because of this. So this is good. The Trump campaign and administration haven't had any chance to get too deep into this. But, uh, you know, the, if they never prove a case of collusion. I think the reason that they won't be able to is because there hadn't been enough things built up, you know, enough connection. Where, who? Everybody thought Hillary was going to win. So, of course, the Russians would want to collude with Hillary as much as possible. And, yeah, maybe, you you know, if you're Russia, if you're Putin, you're going to diversify your portfolio a little and maybe try to pretend that you're going to help Trump a little bit too. try to pretend to be his friend because, 
I mean, there's a small chance he's going to win, but maybe he's going to win, and you would want to be able to get things from him as well. You want to affect the government of the United States, undermine everything here. And there's been a number of stories talking about how Putin has, with very little investment, been able to stir up a lot of trouble. And, you know, people fighting with each other here in the United States, uh, pit different groups against each other and stuff, all with a little bit of funding of ads on on social media. Uh, Kay in the chat room says, you take data from wherever you can get it, but you analyze it carefully. Okay, so you would want a U.S. politician to be taking information from Russia. So, you know, anything to to win the election, you know, as long as it's your side and they're doing a good thing. I'm sorry, I don't think that the end justifies the means. That is my point. My my case with this is that if you say, yeah, it's no big deal, if as long as Trump's getting true information about it, I say no. If you yourself are doing anything to sanction or encourage Russia interfering with U.S. elections, that's wrong. That's wrong. And I, I don't care, you know, yeah, you'd say, okay, well, Hillary, the world would end if Hillary Clinton had been president. First of all, that's not true. But second of all, if we're really in that sort of state, then what are we talking about? We're not talking about president anymore. We're talking about we need to have a revolution or something. You know, you're, you're, you're either in a, in a situation where you're actually at war or you're not. You say, okay, well, if you're actually at war, then yeah, okay, take information from wherever you get it. All bets are off. But if you're on the premise that we're still electing people and voting and we have a government and all of that, and then you say, ah, it's okay if we deal with our enemies in order to win elections. No, I'm sorry. I just, I just don't think that's right. You know, you, in, unless you it's, – it's funny. Something from that I was teaching in philosophy of law, there's an article that I used to teach in philosophy of law that always comes to mind in this kind of situation. And it um, – Lon Fuller wrote it, and it's a, you know, kind of a parable about a distant future. There's some people called the Spelunzian Explorers, and they are down in this cave, and they get trapped, and they lose contact with everybody. And then they have limited contact, but they have to decide what to do, and they can't survive unless they eat one of the people, and they end up eating. It's really a gross thing. Um but there's a series of fictitious opinions, court opinions written about whether or not the all the explorers who ate the other one in order to survive, whether they should be uh, convicted of murder and, and themselves receive the death penalty. And there was a supposedly natural law written opinion, but there was good things in it. I, you know, I'm not a natural law theorist, so to speak, but some of what natural law theorists say is, is correct. Um, in the opinion, this guy, I believe it was Foster, he says that at a certain point when peaceful coexistence of human beings is no longer possible, then you are outside the jurisdiction of law. And, you know, really, if we're at the point that you think we need to take 
information and help from enemies in order to win elections because the other person who's going to be elected is so bad that this is not the way to do it. What you do is you have a revolution. You don't pretend that you're going through the motions of an election and stuff while dealing with, you know, with, with, with enemies. So that's my position. Um, do I think that there's a collusion case? No. What I've been doing at each point is sitting back and seeing what information actually comes in. I don't think that, you know, for, for all I know, it might end up being a whole waste. And, and in a way, what one thing that will make me mad is if they just keep investigating Trump, they never come up with anything, which is quite likely, again, because I don't think Russia was that heavily invested in Trump. They didn't think he was going to win. And then, of course, when all the scrutiny is around, then it's going to be really hard for Russia to collude with you know, Trump or Trump to collude with Russia in any way because everything's being scrutinized now, which is good. Uh, but what will make me mad is that they're not going to go after Hillary Clinton because it looks like, and you keep seeing a lot more, that there is something there. There's definitely something there with Hillary Clinton. And again, that's what you would expect because Russia's trying to interfere here, trying to undermine us, trying to undermine our way of life. And they're not doing it just here. They're doing it in Europe as well. Um, so no, we shouldn't have a double standard, but I don't think it's a false alternative. You can't say, oh, well, what are they doing investigating Trump because there's all this with Hillary Clinton? It's not either or, it's both. And we should all, I think, be very concerned about this. I have you know, this principle of, of insofar as I am still on the premise of dealing with my fellow human beings according to moral principle, that I'm not going to go around and, and violate that principle. If, if we've decided that peaceful coexistence is no longer possible and that it's all out war, okay, that's a different story. But I don't think we're there yet. Craig in the chat room says, revealing the truth will undermine the American way of life. Do you mean, Craig, revealing the truth about the extent to which political leaders of all parties have been colluding with enemies. I'm open to thinking that's true. I mean, as I said here, I, you know, this meeting and you've got Donald Trump Jr.'s eagerness to meet on the premise that there's going to be some dirt given on Hillary Clinton. If that's what it is, I love it is what I recall the email being uh, said and you know there's now been different convictions out there and why is somebody lying if they have nothing to hide there's enough there to keep investigating are they going to come up with a case for collusion no do i think they should still go after hillary clinton yes but i think it's important i don't think it's you know oh it's, if it's good information it's good information as i said i myself have turned down good information some of you uh, may remember there's been discussions at times, uh, you know, Leonard Peikoff talking about, you know, is it okay to buy the book of, you know, somebody else who's bad out there or whatever and, and you know, look at it and stuff. Yeah, okay, you have to buy Kant's book and read it in order to answer him or something. But if the, there what you're doing is you're trying to actually answer them, right? So, I, I see it as, as a different issue, but there, there's an issue here. There's a real issue here. And the fact that it's Trump and that it's not Hillary Clinton doesn't remove the issue. The fact that they may never be able to come up with a full case of collusion isn't the issue. As I said, I'm glad at least that they're watching it. 
what does any eagerness to meet have to do with it? It affects my opinion of the guy. His eagerness to meet with Russians in order to get dirt on Hillary Clinton makes me think very little of him because the Russians are bad. That's all. That's all. And you can't say, oh, you know, and this is what some of the people on the right do, right? You can't say, wow, you know, it's really bad. Edward Snowden, he's over there. He's a traitor. You know, he's hanging out with the Russians and stuff. You know, you can't say that he's there and then that's bad, but then it's okay for Trump to get his information. And that's actually what some people who are pro-Trump do, right? Because a lot of people in Trump administration think that Snowden is guilty of treason. So, um, so many double standards out there. I don't know. It's just too much politics, too much politics. Now, what has the development been, right? So is this, all this stuff even true? That's the thing that's being called into question now. And Frankly, I'm getting some whiplash, right? And, and I'm going into politics. Normally, I just don't get that involved in politics per se. But it, it's starting to get ridiculous here. I remember um, that when Bannon was leaving the Trump White House, of course, Trump tweeted out some complimentary stuff about Bannon. And uh, I remember Tammy Bruce, whom I really love and respect and everything else. I'm saddened that she's so pro-Trump and I'm not. Uh, that that's obviously a, a division between us, but you know she was tweeting out there how Bannon is going to continue essentially to fight the good fight on behalf of Trump out there. That you know Bannon was still somebody that they like, and now that Bannon, of course, has released all this expose and stuff, he is no longer a a favored person. So this is the way that I saw it go this morning. First, I posted this story on Facebook, Trump tower meeting with Russians, treasonous Bannon says an explosive book. And then all the pro Trump people, well, not all the pro Trump, but there was one in particular uh, on my Facebook feed who was saying, Oh, this guy Wolf is misquoting people or he's fabricating these quotations. Look, here's this other guy who's like a close friend of Trump who's quoted in the book and who says, hey, I've never said that thing that Wolf is quoting me as saying. And there were some tweets from, I believe, a New York Times journalist who had spoken to the guy who was quoted in Wolf's book. And, um, you know, the the guy, I think his name is Barrick, uh, denied the quotation and everything. And so the... Facebook friend of mine goes on and says, look, it's not beyond Wolf to fabricate the quotes. Probably this Bannon quotation is fabricated, is what they're saying. And then, you know, then the question is, well, what does Bannon say, right? What does Bannon say? If you go over to Breitbart, I've given you in the program notes, actually, the article that I'm interested in. Let me... Go and grab that. Again, if you want to check out program notes, don'tletitgo.com is where you grab them. So there's an article. Let me find it here. Donald Trump furious. Steve Bannon, quote, not only lost his job, he lost his mind. And this is an article from Breitbart. Bannon heads up Breitbart. And it is just reporting that Trump is furious that Steve Bannon, you know, basically said all this stuff. And there's a huge, long Uh, quotation from Trump. You can read Trump's full statement about how horrible Steve Bannon is now. Um, 
So there's the whiplash, right? So Bannon is great. Now Bannon is horrible. He's lost his job. He's lost his mind and everything else. And this reminds you, you know, essentially of Orwell. So that was the tweet that I put out there. Uh, you know, there, in 1984, if you've read it and you recall, one of the ways that the socialist dictatorship keeps everybody oppressed is through constant war, that there's always a war going on. And, you know, the the war, you're, we were always changing we, I say we, this is horrible how much I ident- identify with 1984. Um, that's very revealing. I said we. Um, I, I, maybe I'm just too empathetic when I read books or something. I don't know. So the the wonderful innocent citizens in 1984 uh, were always subjected to a change in allegiance by their government. And sometimes they were allied with you know, a country called Eurasia, and then other times it was East Asia. But East Asia and Eurasia were always at war with each other, and then the only question was, which one was our, our see again, ally? I'm just going to do it. I'm sorry. I'm going to go with that. Um, and so what I do occasionally with Trump is, first of all, I'll call North Korea East Asia. But, you know, here on the political scene, it's like, okay, so now Bannon's East Asia. You know, first he was your, we, we were allied with him. And now we're not allied with him anymore. It's like just suddenly out. First, he was great, highest quality people, best people that he's got as advisors and stuff. And then even when he left, still, you know, great respect and everything else and how he helped him through this crucial part of his campaign. I think that's one of the things he said. And now, now nah, he's, he's just an enemy. That's a developing story, right? Because there's just so much being spilled out there on Twitter and there are some people who are marshalling various quotations from, I guess, the pre-release of Wolf's book or stuff like that, that, that Bannon has said. And they're saying, no, you know, the, the things that Bannon has said in this book are inaccurate. And perhaps this book is like a just, you know, huge shovel dump of BS, I think somebody called it or something. So, it's developing. We actually don't know. So, so was Wolf misquoting Bannon? It looks like, no, that's not the case. Bannon is not denying that he said this, that he thought it was treasonous. And then the question is, is it BS? So, you know, is Bannon forming an informed judgment about whether that meeting was treasonous? Did he know something about the meeting and the motives of the people, you know, on the Trump side? that goes beyond what we know about the emails. And so then therefore he characterizes it accurately as treasonous or is it a, a bunch of garbage? We know that Bannon is guilty of something. So for example, providing a platform for the alt-right on Breitbart. So no, he's not the best guy in the world. What will we see? What will we see? That's really the question. Um, so that was, what we get to start out at least politically with in 2018 on our national stage with Donald Trump and the continuing saga. I almost feel like you should just watch Twitter all the time, constantly. Um, but by the way, I was preparing my program notes and Shapiro is just sometimes Ben Shapiro is just sometimes so funny <laughs> after the 
whole release of Trump's statement about Bannon. Shapiro writes, Steve Bannon now has blood coming out of his wherever. And I don't know if you remember this. This is, again, it's getting into politics. And sometimes the political jokes that Shapiro is going to make are going to go right over my head because I just don't always get involved in politics. But Trump got a lot of flack, deservedly so, because there was a female journalist who he was criticizing and he, it, was, it wasn't in writing. It was orally, you know, where he's really just, he's got no filter. He's just got no filter. Uh, and, you know, maybe, again, that's why Bannon got along with me. And no filter too, right? But Trump's got no filter. And so filter speak, I mean, skip filter speaking. I should call him no filter. Um, Trump is speaking about this journalist who he's criticizing. And he says she has blood coming out of her eyes something else and her whatever basically referring to, I guess, menstrual period or something, which is just so tasteless and horrible. So Shapiro writes, Steve Bannon now has blood coming out of his wherever Shapiro, you know, he walks this fine line, right? Because he's, this is obviously critical of Trump and the way Trump delivers criticism. But at the same time, Shapiro seems to also be critical of Bannon. And actually, that might be the best way to go in a political decision like this. Sometimes I think Shapiro is a little too sympathetic to Trump. I'm more critical of Trump than Shapiro is. But on this particular issue, this might be the way to go because we, don't, we know Bannon's not the best dude. And um, kind of fun just to watch. There's someone I follow on Twitter who really had a, a funny comment about this because you know because we're just watching this drama unfold between two guys for whom we don't necessarily have a whole pile of respect right uh jack he goes by uh, his little handle on twitter is oaa select (laughs) he says he feels like a moocher getting to watch this for free it's like get your popcorn going because there's this fight between Bannon and Trump. Everyone's saying that Trump is winning, that he's got the nuclear button that's bigger, and that's how we get back to the whole nuclear button thing. Um, yeah, Old Toad says, without more info, this is all speculation. You know, question is, how credible is what Bannon, I guess, is feeding to this wolf guy? You know, what, what we do have is we have concrete emails, and every time when I see one of these articles, New York Times, Washington Post, wherever, you know, it is the leftist media that's putting these articles out there about the Russian collusion case. When they have it, I always look for the kernel, you know, what is the little piece of evidence that they think they have at this point that's moving it forward? And there's not a ton, but there's little bits each time where it's like, yeah, there is something there. There is some there, there. And to me, it is important that we not have Russia interfere in our elections or try to influence our politicians. I don't want them buying influence from the politicians in any way, shape, or form. Russia is an enemy country. Uh, I don't even know if we should have allies giving help winning elections, right? There's a reason that presidents are supposed to be born in the United States, right? There's a reason for that. There's there's some, you know, I, I don't believe in just kind of blind nationalism, but there's, you know, the, for, for some reason, the intrinsic subjective objective thing came in mind that there's there is something about the, the country that you were born in that gives you some some loyalty to it, some attachment. 
Um, so yeah, I don't I don't want anybody, but I certainly don't want an enemy. And I think that anybody who wants to govern our country and uphold, you know, the Constitution and the principles on which our country was founded, that that person should reject all help from Putin, who is a scumbag. That's that's kind of my position on it. And I'm just open to seeing the evidence. Do I think there's a collusion case necessarily? No. Do I think that the leftist media is biased about it? Yes. Do I think that there hasn't been enough done to go after Hillary? And am I also watching the Comey thing? Because the latest is that Comey cleared Clinton before he even saw a bunch of crucial evidence. Yes, that's terrible that he did that. All of those things can all be true at the same time. Um, That's another thing that we've seen, you know, a repeated theme that you can have, you know, when there's false alternatives, multiple things can be true at the same time that some people are trying to pose as contradictory and they aren't necessarily actually, we should get to one of those, right? Another false alternative that's been put out there. Um, The false alternative that we have seen from the New York times recently, and I actually don't have the article in the program notes, because like I said, I was laughing too hard this morning at Ben Shapiro and other people while I was putting together these notes, but um, Israel has been doing quite a bit in its self-defense recently and to ensure its future survival. I do have one article to that effect in the program notes, but one that I saw in the New York times a couple days ago was talking about some laws that they're putting into motion. Um, At least the governing party, Netanyahu's party, has been putting into motion on Sunday. What they're doing is they're trying to, in uh, in effect, start to annex uh, some of the occupied territories and make sure that Israeli law applies to them, not through just military rule. And the New York Times was basically saying that by doing some of these things that Israel was closing off the possibility of a two-state solution with, you know, some sort of so-called Palestinian state and then Israel existing side by side. And I would say it's a false alternative. You can't say that Israel, which is taking actions that are necessary for its own continued survival, that in doing that, it is closing off the possibility of another state, you know, like I said, a a so-called Palestinian state, side by side with it. Um, The only people who are foreclosing that possibility are, you know, the Hamas and Palestinians themselves. They're the ones who are saying that, for example, if United States goes ahead and recognizes Jerusalem as the capital of Israel, that therefore United States has no ability to facilitate the peace negotiations between Israel and and so-called Palestinians. You know, they're the ones who say that. Um, They're the ones who say that if Israel is going to effectively annex certain territories that are required for its continued survival, that therefore there cannot be a side-by-side state. And New York Times, in its presentation of what Israel is doing is just clamping right onto that, that, you know, it's a false alternative that basically Israel has to relinquish any claim to the so-called occupied territories. They have to relinquish a claim to Jerusalem as the capital, or 
they're not open to a two-state solution, supposedly. But I don't see that to be the case at all. And, and New York Times, you know, they're trying to push the idea that it's blatantly obvious. Um, uh, Craig in the chat room. <laughs> he says, American politicians have an inalienable right to lie to the American people. No foreign interference. Now, this is the thing. Are, are, are they lying to the American people? And then the question is, who is the one that should be exposing this? Should you have politicians releasing the information about the lies of the other side during the course of an election? Or should we have, for example, our media exposing lies to the American people? You know, the, the, To me, the whole thing is not trying to win an election and purport to American media will never do it, he says. American media is not going to expose lies told to the American people. I mean, media around the world will do it, at least. And then, you know, we need, we need to have access to it. If we don't have access to media that will do it, somebody will do it. Some people are motivated to do it, and there's all kinds of ways to do it. If those communication channels get shut down, then we're at the stage of revolution, right? Everything's totally corrupt, he says. Yeah. I mean, you know, what we have to ask, and some people have said, okay, well, United States is so bad off that it's time to leave United States and live someplace else because you can live a freer and better life someplace else. And, and I'm open to that idea. You know, I don't believe that there is some out-of-context duty to always be, quote, loyal to United States, even though you were born here and you think it was founded on a great principle and everything else. United States is not what it once was. At what point do you draw the line and you say, okay, my life is no longer free and good and I no longer feel the reverence for my country and everything else that makes me want to stay here. Maybe there's other values that are higher to me. Okay, fine. I'm open to that. But then if you're going to stay there, and particularly if you're going to run for office and work within a system, then there's certain rules of that system that you should follow. And, and to me, I don't think that any person who's running for United States president, you know, running for that office, should be accepting help from Russia. That's all. Yeah. So Putin can tell the media, but not Trump. You know, the whole point is they were trying to give special access to information for Trump so that Trump could use it to help win the election. Now, if Putin's going to go ahead and tell media stuff, I mean, how can we prevent what Putin's going to tell media? Now, if, if he's getting special information by hacking into our servers, then we need to figure out, right, there's been some information about that, then we need to find that and prevent that. Do we want Putin right, hacking into our servers. If you say, okay, well, it's okay, we want Putin to hack into our servers, you know, let's, let's go back, right, because I, I am a fan still, even though Edward Snowden is quite mixed. You know, the other day, Edward Snowden was tweeting out great stuff about Iran and the communication channels in Iran being shut down, and, you know, we should try to help them. Actually, I think other people were trying to were saying we should try to help them, that Trump should try to help them. I don't know that Snowden made a call to Trump particularly, but he was talking about how these channels were being 
uh, interfered with these communication channels. Uh, you know, Snowden did something that broke the rules of the NSA. And I've said, you know, I voiced my support for it. The reason that I voiced my support for what Snowden has done is that I take him at his word and from what everything that I've heard about it, that it's true that he tried to go up through channels within his chain of command and was unable to get satisfaction with respect to repeat rights violations, continuous rights violations on the part of our government against the American people. That the only way that the information about what our government has done in terms of bulk surveillance, you know, collection of data about us without warrant, without probable cause, without particularized suspicion, the only way to expose that was for him to grab those files and go to the media and go outside and do this and, and inform everybody and let everybody know. But Snowden's not trying to win an election or anything else, right? And moreover, it's he reached that end point where, from what he knew, it was not possible. The, you know, the other piece of the puzzle, and I've talked about this on previous shows and bored you guys to death with it, the other piece of the puzzle is that people who knew of these programs were trying to challenge them in court, but they couldn't get standing because they didn't have concrete evidence that this stuff was going on. So the Snowden revelations were a crucial piece of the puzzle for people to properly challenge these bulk data collection programs, and still nothing's been done. I mean, to me, I think that it's my constitutional solution that has to you know, be put in place in order to at least help on that account. We also need to keep legal encryption technology like Apple. Uh, you know, Apple's one of the forerunners in wonderful encryption technology. We want that to continue, right, um, in order to protect the privacy of Americans. Because as it is right now, our government unjustly, improperly violates our rights with respect to our personal data. There, the, you know, the proper law is just simply not in place. So with that context, that it's continual rights violations by our government, systematic, uh, as John Bolton told me in the de little debate I had with him on Tammy Bruce's show, he said, all three branches of government have signed off on this. You know, Snowden's a traitor. He should be hung because all three branches of government have signed off on systematic rights violations of American citizens. I say no. So in that context, I say you have no choice. Yeah, I understand. You tried to work within the system. Snowden said he hoped Obama was going to be better, but he wasn't. He was disappointed. He said, OK, that's it. I got to do this. So I still support what Snowden did on that account. But, you know, if you have decided you're an American president or not you're an American president, you're an American running for president of the United States, and you're going to uphold the Constitution and everything else, the very least, you should not accept help from your enemies. Don't accept help from your enemies. You know, you're not up against it. You can win an election, you know, imagine, just, just based on policy, just just based on honesty, by showing out, you know, out there what you want to do. Um Okay, we have someone in the chat room who's telling me I should check out a certain definition of politician and probably what politicians you can't trust generally. I'm fine. Um, politician secrets, says 
Craig must be protected from the American people knowing them by preventing hacking. You know, this, this is this is the thing, right? Do we want an enemy country hacking into our computer systems? Because it's an enemy country. How do we know that they're going to hack into the right computer systems at the right time? As I said, the, the time that I say that you need to, you know, break the rules, break the principles, evade, because what did, you know, Snowden do? Snowden had himself, if he was a contractor, you know, a U.S. contractor, he'd taken some oath to uphold the laws and not to release this stuff. And per him, he did it only when that it, you know, he saw no other way to challenge these systematic rights violations by our government. If you reach that point, but I don't think we're at that point. I don't think we're at that point. I don't, you know, I don't think we're, and, and the, you know, again, the question is, um, is it only Russians, right? That could, that could hack into this. Maybe you say, okay, well, Hillary Clinton is really corrupt and you want somebody hacking into her system. Maybe you've decided that, that if you know, suppose, and I don't believe it, but suppose you think this, suppose you think, Hillary Clinton is, you know, it's going to be horrible if she wins and everything else. And you've decided you're going to take the fall that you would go ahead and be prosecuted as a hacker and everything else, whatever the consequences are. Maybe you're going to exile yourself, but you're going to expose out to the American people what, you know, Hillary Clinton's corruption is. Okay, you know, do it. But I don't I don't want it from the Russians. And, you know, the, the time that you're going to accept help from the Russians is the time that you've decided violent revolution, I guess, is your only thing. You know, you're you're deciding you're at war because the Russians, they're just they're no good. I, I don't believe, you know, for example, in forming alliances with people in the Middle East, you know, going out there and saying, Oh, we're gonna have, you know, an alliance with Saudi Arabia against Iran or everything else. Let's just only have Israel as our ally against Iran if we need to go against Iran. Why why the Saudis? They don't respect rights over there. So, yeah, Hillary was corrupt. Hillary had Seth Rich murdered, perhaps. I'm I'm fine. And, And this is part of the reason that when Trump got elected... Sorry, I'm reading people from the chat room. That's what I'm reading. If you if you don't see right now, I've got uh, Craig talking about Hillary's corruption. Yes, I agree. Hillary was horribly corrupt, and I did not want her to you know to see her be president. And unlike other objectivists, a number of objectivists said, "Yeah, let's vote for Hillary Clinton." I could not see myself voting for Hillary Clinton. I could never pull the lever for Clinton as much as I Trump and don't trust Trump or anything else. Um, no, I, I wouldn't do it. And I, I said at the time, and I still believe it was the right conclusion at the time, and it still may be true that we're slightly better off having Trump than Hillary Clinton, at least slightly better off. But what did I do? I voted for Gary Johnson. He seemed like the decent one of the three. I, I was joking with a friend this morning. I was saying, you know, imagine because all this stuff was going on with Trump today. And for all we know, we're just going to all get blown up in some nuclear Holocaust or something soon. Um, uh, Trump, you know, sorry, if we had Gary Johnson, I got interrupted by a sound. I'm sorry, guys. Uh, If we had Gary Johnson right now, what would happen? We would all just probably like everybody in California now be getting stoned 
and we'd all be happy. Nothing would be happening. The, you know, the government wouldn't be getting anything done, but we'd all be happy and getting stoned, and it'd be all fair. I'm joking. Gary Johnson would be better than that. But I, I liked him, even though I had some major problems with Gary Johnson, simply because he seemed like a decent, honest, earnest guy. So I voted for him. Uh, if we're still on the premise of voting, though, I just, yeah. it would be better if we had John Galt. Certainly. Uh, Kay in the chat room asks, is Snowden accepting help from the Russians? You know, the way I see it, I mean, first of all, he's there, right? He's living there. So there's some help technically from Russians and that they're allowing him to live there. So there's that. Um, is he accepting help from them? And is it acceptance or is nothing open to him? Oh, you guys, I'm actually going to have to mute for a second and I'll be right back. One second. Okay, sorry, you should be able to hear me again. <laughs> Who is the dog barking at, people are asking. Yeah, right. Um, yeah, I had I had to go to attend to something, but I am back. Um, yeah, John Galt has almost as much chance of winning the election as Gary Johnson. Yeah, Gary Johnson didn't have a chance. And in California, where I am, the state was definitely going to go for Hillary Clinton, so it's not like, you know, I, my vote was having any effect anyway. So I figured, why not? I wasn't going to vote for Trump. Yeah, we beat the subject to hell, says, says uh, Kay. Yeah, I'm ready to go on to something else, too. Let's go back to the program notes at the blog, don'tletitgo.com. I've got other good stuff. So what is the other good news about Israel? So Netanyahu kicks butt on the statement in support of Iran. You need to go watch that video. As I said, their party seems to be passing legislation that is also going to or at least proposing legislation that is going to ensure Israel's self-preservation. And the good news about Trump is that they feel that they're in a climate that they can do this, and at least they're not going to fall under criticism from the United States. And in fact, they've received a big show of support because we have recognized Jerusalem as the capital. Another story that I saw just this morning out there on Twitter, Israeli lawmakers advance bill on death penalty for, quote, terrorists, and they put terrorists in quotation marks in the headline of the article, and it could be because they, you know, the France 24 that's reporting this actually is skeptical about the the wisdom of this. Um, You know, if you are kind of incurring repeated terrorist attacks from within your country. You would like to do whatever you can to deter them. And, you know, you go ahead and you tell these people you're going to have the death penalty if you, you know, uh, commit one of these terrorist attacks. I mean, a lot of these people are suicidal anyway, right? The ones who are committing the terrorist attacks are often jihadists. So are they really going to be deterred by this? But some of them might be. Death penalty for, quote, terrorists. What do you think of this overall? I mean, they're doing what I think is necessary for their survival. They do have from terrorists attacks from within, and it is an ongoing war. Um, it's going to require three more votes in Parliament before it comes law, so it's not there. It said, would ease the requirements military courts must meet to sentence those convicted of, quote, terrorist crimes to death. 
They have not carried out any execution since 1962. So they're going to make it easier to kill the terrorist scumbags, people who go out there and just indiscriminately kill innocent civilians in Israel. That would be that that would be a good thing in theory. Now, you know, Rand always talked about the death penalty with some skepticism, and I I share it with her because, uh, you know, obviously the death penalty is irreversible. So it's not like you put the guy for life in prison and then there's the, you know, exculpatory evidence and then you release the guy and maybe he's lost quite a bit of his life sitting there in prison, but at least he's still got some life left to live. Death penalty, by contrast, it's obviously irreversible. So there's that. But you would say, okay, maybe... You know, and what do you do then, right? You have to have a pile of procedural safeguards with the death penalty so that there can be challenge after challenge to make sure that you really have the person who is guilty of a truly horrific crime, a real atrocity, which would be true of these people, right? If you if you define terrorists properly, then yeah, you've got somebody, you know, we're talking about the type of person who will get a truck and, you know, mow down a whole bunch of pedestrians and a wonderful holiday celebration or something that we've seen this sort of person this is a scumbag who deserves to die yes okay so if you got the right person and you know you've got the right person then that's okay but you have to have procedural safeguards to make sure that you do this and those procedural safeguards cost a whole lot of money so what some people have said is they say look it's so expensive to have a justly administered death penalty, then we may as well not have it. And so if you think about this in the case of Israel, I think, well, they're essentially at war, and this sort of attack happens there all the time, and it might be quite valuable to make it easier to actually follow through and and implement the death penalty there because of the deterrent effect to the extent that any of these guys can be deterred by the prospect of the, you know, the death penalty, you would like to do it and just show that the country means business, that it takes it seriously. And in that case, even if you, and I, you know, I hope that they would, that they're still going through the procedure required to make sure it's justly administered, that you've actually a hundred percent know you've got the scumbag who's guilty of an atrocity before you, you know, do whatever you do, execute with the electrocute or injection or however they they do it over there, Um, then yes, you know, go ahead and and do it. So it's nice to see that they are, you know, taking the steps necessary to survive. And, you know, that is something that you can say in favor of Trump, that for whatever reason he's doing it, and, you know, there's probably some, you know, good motive in there that he's making it possible for them to do this. He's at least not standing in their way the way that Obama did. Obama, you know, was was actually in in a lot of ways opposed to Israel, and it was uh, not a good climate for them. So nice to see. And as I said, Netanyahu, I only wish that Trump would give a a speech in, in support of the Iranian protests in the way that um, Netanyahu did. Okay, so go back to the program notes. What else do I have? Because I don't have a whole pile of time left here. Um, 
Oh, there was a tweet the other day, and it, this has to do with, with Israel and the so-called Palestinians. Trump was talking about the fact that we send so much money over to the Palestinians, and it's apparently not direct. There's an organization that we send the funding through, but he says that we pay the Palestinians hundreds of millions of dollars a year, and he says we get no appreciation or respect. They don't even want to negotiate a long overdue peace treaty with Israel. He says we have taken Jerusalem, the toughest part of the negotiation, off the table, but Israel for that would have to have had to pay more. But with the Palestinians no longer willing to talk peace, why should we make any of these massive future payments to them? So he's saying, look, we shouldn't be giving a whole bunch of money to the so-called Palestinians. And, you know, what, what do we have to say to that? Well, that's good, of course, but should we ever be, been making payments to them Anyway, this is a whole big, huge charity operation. And I write to Trump, assuming they're not enemies, which is a significant assumption, let individual Americans, if they choose, make voluntary contributions. Yeah, in a free society, we would not be taxed in order to send a whole bunch of money over to the so-called Palestinians who are arguably enemies either of us or of our allies. Anyway, it's, it's ridiculous that we're doing it, that we shouldn't be making these payments to them. Same, you know, similar, he talks about, you know, he talks a big game about restricting immigration of so-called refugee populations and stuff, but it's still in his budget, right? We should not be funding altruistic stuff with, you know, it's not a proper function of government to do all this. New York Times, of course, trots out, they say, oh, some people in Israel are upset that maybe we're not going to still send money to the Palestinians. And why is it, if you read in the article the Israelis who are upset, it's because they think that now they're going to have to pay themselves because they've decided that it is their moral duty to ensure the funding for, I don't know, electricity and other things and stuff in these, in these territories. So, um, so that's, that's another controversy that's going on out there. The, how dare we discontinue funding uh, with our tax dollars of the so-called Palestinians. Trump is finally getting the guts to do it only because they say they won't come to the negotiating table, but why were we doing it anyway? Why in the world? <laughs> Old Toad in the chat room says, it's cheaper to feed terrorists bacon. Yeah, that would, that would definitely be cheap. Uh, then there was another, you, like I said, Trump has just been on this spree, so I'm sorry, you guys, but it's, it's Trump, Trump, Trump all the time. Trump was on this spree about also free speech, and next Monday, this is what he says he's going to do. Next Monday, he says, I will be announcing, and this is in all caps now, the part I'm about to read is all caps, the most dishonest and corrupt media awards of the year. Then he says on Monday at 5 o'clock, subjects will cover dishonesty and bad reporting in various categories from the fake news media. Stay tuned. This is Trump. He tweeted this out yesterday. Now, you know, I see this and I figure, okay, well, it's not happening until Monday. I have some time to formulate a response to it. And finally, I came up with this because he's doing this on the East Coast. Don't you think it's already cold enough there? I've seen headlines that say it's going to get colder than it is on Mars or something. (laughs) 
that's one of the weather headlines said I colder than Mars. I don't know, but really, really cold. And of course, what is Trump doing here? He's president of the United States going out there and um, being very, very, very active in his criticism of news media. We've talked about it before. I'm not going to belabor it now, but I think he crosses the line in terms of, you know, just a proper criticism or defending himself against the news media versus criticizing the media in a way that has in first amendment language, a so-called chilling effect. He's a president. He's got power to actually do things. And people say, well, he never will. There's an implicit threat in this, just like there was in Obama's attack watch. I would say even more so. I mean, he's going to go on national television and announce which media is unfavored. And of course he's probably going to go on his favorite network Fox to do it. I bet. Um, this idea that there's the favored and the unfavored news media. I, no, sorry. I, I just don't, don't think it's right for a president to go that far with it. Now talk about censorship, actual for real censorship out there. Pop star arrested in Egypt over suggestive music video. And you could ask, you know, where are the feminists on this? Because this is a female pop star. It says an Egyptian pop singer has been the second woman in less than a month to face punishment in the country after a music video posted online was deemed by critics as, quote, an attack on society. Prosecutors arrested Layla Amer for four days for, quote, incitement to debauchery. That's it. That's an interesting crime. Incitement to debauchery. After she appeared in a music video called Basumik, which translates to Look at Your Mother, a judicial source told AFP. The video, which was posted online, features a man watching a belly dancer and shows the singer making allegedly obscene gestures gestures with her hands. There was a lawyer who filed a complaint. He told the local newspaper the video was, quote, a moral disaster and a great risk to Egypt. Quote, these works represent an attack on society and the destruction of the state, it being an Islamic country, he said. And what did they do? They went ahead and arrested her. So if you live in Egypt and you post something online that offends somebody, it's not, oh, you know, that the company will take it down according to its terms of service or whatever, which is a private company has got the right to do. The government will come in and arrest you simply on the complaint of somebody. You know, sometimes on these social media things, people report you and then they take your page down for a couple of days or whatever it is. And I've seen that happen to people. And sometimes it's it's just a mistake. You know, it's, a, it's part of the algorithm, so to speak. So on Facebook, I've seen, um, you know, that people's pages be deactivated temporarily because somebody reported. And I think if enough people report, it'll automatically be taken down until a human being has a chance to review it. Um, and then oftentimes, you know, the human being comes back and reviews it and says, no, that's fine. You know, it was just all these people who decided they were offended. And so therefore your thing has to be taken down. Uh, there's been a lot of talk recently about, the companies doing this and, and maybe not being um, even in the enforcement of 
their terms of service and things, right? So that more right-wing people are taken down than left-wing people and all this kind of stuff. Let's criticize that, right? Let's, you know, be critical. Let's boycott a social media outlet if they are being unfair in the enforcement of terms of service, you know, at least be outspoken about it. But it's very different than, oh, well, you can, in your country, file a complaint about how someone's music video is not Islamic, and it sounds like it was pretty tame, actually, and then be arrested for it, right? We're not there. We're not there yet, which is good. Uh, yeah. So let me go ahead and get over to the program notes. What else do we have? Oh, I think the rest of it is more just fun things. There is one story, and it was more apropos around the holidays than it is now, but maybe if you've had a stressful holiday season and stuff, you might want to go ahead and take a look at this article. If you're Suppose you had to spend time over the holidays with your family and you got into arguments, maybe the same old arguments you've been having for years and you're thinking about what to do or Maybe you were actually one of the people who's already estranged from certain family members and you were wondering how prevalent it is to be estranged. Everybody talks about spending holidays with their families. The article from New York Times, and they published it quite some time ago. I just haven't had a chance to share it with you guys yet. December 20th, debunking myths about estrangement. It's not necessarily in substance of you know telling you why people are estranged and all of that. It's it's not so profound. It's more anecdotal. But there there are some interesting statistics there. And so the kind of the two things that I take from this article, first of all, that estrangement from family members is more common maybe than some people think, and they give you some statistics that just that apply to England, I believe. Um and then the other thing is just that the article itself has a pretty accepting tone about it, that there isn't an automatically accepted duty to spend holidays or, you know, to be connected always with your family members. And it's kind of, you know, probably I would think that people who read this around the time of the holidays had taken some solace with it if they were one of the people who either themselves was estranged from the family or they were in a family where somebody had chosen to lose contact with everybody else you know, people who are connected only by blood and you know they have a relationship that hasn't gone well otherwise and they don't have any particular shared values if there have been significant wrongdoings of one family member to another and everything else these can all be perfectly valid reasons for estrangement so people who are in that situation i myself have some situations like that in my family you might, you know, take some solace in, in this argument and maybe some of the reasons that people have talked about in the article for being estranged from family members, maybe you'll identify with some of those. As I said, I didn't find it so profound and insight, insightful with respect to that. It's just, it's just nice that the New York Times was publishing something about it and essentially saying you're not alone and... um you know, giving some some real statistics uh, behind it. Uh, what else? Mm. 
child bride in Turkey or something. Yeah, I don't, I don't doubt it. I don't doubt it at all. Now, if people did want to call in, I've only got a few more minutes left, but if you want to comment on any of the things that I've got today, 760-888-5817. One thing I promised to talk to you about was this book, this Mark Manson book, and I'll talk about it. And also there's a couple other books I was, I've been looking at. One is an article of, excuse me, a book that I kind of got sucked into because some of the top quote performance gurus were, were, uh, were hawking this guy's course. And I happened to have an audible credit lying around and I went ahead and, and downloaded the book. It's, it's something like, um, like five days to your best year ever or something. I'm, I'm just in the process of listening to it. It was only released yesterday. So it's too soon for me to tell you very much about that book. I listened to all of Manson's book and I think Manson's book is worth listening to if, and his book is again the subtle art of not giving a you know, an F. I'm not going to pronounce the word. If you are offended by profanity, as I said before, you don't want to listen to it. Especially in the first chapter, he really throws in a lot of expletives, but it's it's so funny. And I think that's part of it too. You know, the the prevalence of the expletives lately and some of the stuff I've been sharing is getting me think more explicitly about the use of them and and everything else. And I think in that first chapter, he uses it a lot more in a way to kind of get people, you know, off guard a little bit, just to kind of destabilize you a little to wake you up and to get you to be sort of receptive to what he's trying to tell you in that first chapter. And if, you know, you end up finding yourself receptive to it, and identifying with a lot of the things that he's saying, you might, like I did, I, I was just laughing at a lot of it. I found it really funny. Some of his formulations are just really funny, too. If you go to Manson's website, he has an article by the same name that you can look up. And the article is, you know, based on my recollection, the article is essentially the first chapter. But in the article, there's a lot more instances of the word F-U-C, sorry, I can't even, I can't even spell it, right? The F word. Uh, I think in the article, he includes it 127 times in this really short article. So it's really all over the place. And there's one paragraph in particular where it's just too much. And I quoted it on Facebook. I'm laughing. He, he is really funny, but no, it's not all the way through the book. It's mostly in that first chapter. But yes, you know, what, what is the whole point? The whole point is you have to think carefully about what is really worth giving an F about in your life, right? You, you, and the way he puts it, you, you have only so many Fs to give and you can't go squandering them. But there's a lot more to it. You know, he talks about a culture of entitlement. He talks about certain principles that you can adopt to make your life better. One of the things, and I'll just give you this one thing that I – uh, took from it and found it to be of value. He tells the story of William James. And um, James had, you know, for James is the pragmatist. James had a real lot to overcome in his life. I didn't know. He was really sickly. And then he, even though he was sickly, he went on this, I think, safari to Africa. And then when he was there, he got smallpox and people left him for dead. And then he comes back. He somehow makes it back miraculously not miraculously, but, you know, through great determination, he makes it back. His father still doesn't approve of him because he still hasn't accomplished anything in his life. He was suicidal, and he decided apparently that he would adopt the following principle, that he would 
take responsibility for everything in his life for one year. And Manson draws this distinction. He says, there's something that may not be your fault in your life, but it is your responsibility. And an example he gives is somebody drops a baby on your doorstep. It's not your fault that that baby's there, but suddenly the baby there is your responsibility. You know, what are you going to do with it? So James says that he's going to take responsibility for everything in his life for a year. And if he doesn't like the outcome, he will kill himself. James went through this. And then, of course, he went on to become the famous pragmatist that we all know and hate. Um, But he was really accomplished, right? So that was an interesting, that was just one example. Um, I promised I would tell you one thing before the very end of the show uh, that I got from Manson and my other musings. And it's that I'm going to stop giving an F about what I might look like on camera And I'm going to try to do a live video for you guys next week. I'm cringing as I'm saying this because I'm like, oh, my God, I'm going to be on camera. But, yeah, I'm going to stop giving an F about what I might look like on camera. And I'm going to try to do a video for you guys. So I'll do some sort of test Facebook live video before, but then I'll try to do video for you guys next week. Oh, I'm cringing. I'm cringing. Okay, I'll talk to you next week, everybody. It's going to be, again, Wednesday, 3 p.m. Eastern time, noon Pacific Go party like it's 1999 plus 19 because who knows what Trump is going to tweet out next, everybody. Take care.